Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. I want to get my, my facts straight. Ooh. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind, and in memory of, of Sarah Cliff, we just, we had to do a, a Weeds on Elizabeth Warren releasing a plan to uh, finance Medicare for All. This had been sort of dogging her across multiple presidential debates. Um, she had seemed like she wanted to stay vague on how exactly this was going to work, which I think is the kind of thing a lot of politicians would do for, like, such an aspirational and legislatively unlikely program. But, like, her whole shtick is about how she has a lot of plans. Right. Uh, so it seemed to demand uh, the construction of some kind of plan. And in turn, her putting out some kind of plan because it both speaks to, you know, specific visions of healthcare access and financing and to the broader dispute about how much detail you need to go into in a presidential primary and the relationship between putting together detailed plans and actually accomplishing, you know, legislative goals in office meant that it required a, a weeds episode about it. Absolutely. Especially because this is not, you know, sometimes there's a plan that actually is a plan that is like by having this plan, it means that I've been thinking a lot about this. This is not the actual plan itself. Yeah. But this is the actual plan itself. This is not like a symbolic plan. This is an actual plan with like a tax plan that was developed by the ch- a former chief economist of the Labor Department. This There are cost estimates. There is actual like math here. I'm interested especially to hear from Matt on how the actual numbers and facts and figures actually work. Because the basic premise of Warren's Medicare for All plan is that it would not require, purportedly, a tax increase in the middle class. While I think candidate Bernie Sanders has said, like, well, yeah, it probably would require some higher taxes, but that would be worth it in order to get something good for everyone. But I I basically, I want to switch over to Matt now because he can explain the numbers. I had been working on a piece, and the piece was to say that what Warren had been doing was saying, look, I'm going to give everybody lower costs. You know, she'd been sort of promising that. And I was working on a piece after having spoken to a lot of experts and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and people in Sanders's camp as well saying that 
I didn't think it was going to be possible to fulfill Warren's promise, that I thought that you could deliver a a plan that lowered costs for all sort of categories of people, but not literally everybody, that there was like too much complexity and heterogeneity in the system. Uh, But Warren's team had been kind of like not talking to me about this. And as I was like ready to go with the piece, I suddenly got word from them. They were like, hey, we're coming out with a plan tomorrow. You want to talk to us about it? You know, give, give me a, a preview of the remix. And it, it blew my mind because uh, this plan is, is audacious in a number of respects um, to make its, make its math work. Um, that starts with just what's the total amount of money that you need. I, like a lot of people, had been working off an Urban Institute report uh, that goes into costs of a, a lot of different healthcare options. Uh, she thinks for a bunch of reasons, reasons that she can spend $7 trillion less than Urban thought they would. And so that's like— That's about the amount of money that her team estimates would be spent in the absence of Medicare for All, right? Yes. I mean, exactly. I mean, she's basically saying that by cutting provider payments, in particular, a really sharp cut to prescription drug payments and sort of— modest but significant cuts in payments to hospitals and to specialist physicians, uh, that they can bring unit costs down a lot. And so that even though there will be more treatments, there will be less aggregate national health care spending. So this that, is an argument that's familiar to anybody who remembers the debate over the ACA when there was a lot of talk about bending the cost curve and how, you know, it's a general principle of microeconomics that when you only have one customer, that providers are forced to cut prices to compete for that customer. Yeah, and it's the ACA turned out interestingly in this regard, right? There was a lot of skepticism that the ACA's cost control mechanisms were going to work. And in fact, a lot of those mechanisms were never brought online and sort of didn't work politically. But costs, the cost curve actually bent, right? So we never really put it to the test. And one view is, well, it was a giant coincidence and and like the ACA sort of succeeded by accident. Another view is that the threat of these measures was effective in changing the system. Another view is that certain things that people in health and human services were optimistic about, but that Congressional Budget Office wouldn't score, uh, were actually incredibly effective. Uh, But long story short, like, we never really found out what was going on because the cost curve did, in fact, bend. So, you know, what Warren says here is certainly possible in principle. Um, When I was tweeting about this, I got some angry doctors being like, nobody's going to do more work for less pay. And if you recall, uh, we we did an episode uh, back when Sarah was here about the Saskatchewan doctor strike. And, you know, when Canada rolled out, uh, they call it Medicare, um, their their system, it did, in fact, produce an effort by medical professionals to, like, go galt. Um, But eventually they broke and did it. So this is a question of, like, politics. Like, could you actually— force these kind of cuts on the system. Mathematically, you definitely can, right? I mean, if you look at how much specialists earn, it's not like asking them to take a pay cut is going to lead to them starving in the streets or something. Um, it's just kind of hard to do. She gets essentially $7 trillion, uh, in in savings there that, that I wouldn't have thought she could have. Um, then she's got like a bunch of taxes on the rich, uh, financial transaction tax, a, a very high, a 35% global 
sort of uh, tax on foreign earnings. That's a proposal that like a a worldwide tax on U.S. companies' foreign earnings has been in the mix from left-wing people, but they'd usually been proposing like a 20 percent tax. 35 is a a high rate for that. Um, She's got a financial transactions tax, uh, her wealth tax, which people have talked about a lot. She's now doubled, so it's going to be a 6 percent wealth tax. Um, She claims that stepped-up tax enforcement could raise $2.3 trillion which is not clearly wrong, but I would say it's a very optimistic read of it what you can achieve that way. It sounds a lot like the Republican claims that you can balance, the, you know, that you can get a lot closer to balancing the budget by cutting waste, fraud, and abuse in government programs, right? Like, yes, you can probably squeeze some blood from that, but ultimately it's blood from a stone. And I think that, I mean, that gets to kind of the next point here, which is basically that Warren, part of this is that Warren would pass comprehensive immigration reform, yeah, I want to which put a would pin then in that. lead to $400 billion in new taxable income. And I think we should stay there just for a little bit. But so, but so there's two things. One is immigration reform. The other is $800 billion comes from eliminating the overseas Contingency Operation Fund in the Defense Department, which is this kind of like war slush fund. Um, And so those two even combined are not really that much money, but it's like unrelated controversial issues. Then you get to what I think is sort of the two conceptual centerpieces of this, which there are questions about their workability, although the math on them is very clear. Right. So she says that the federal government can capture the money that states currently spend on health care. I was prepared to go to press with an article very confidently asserting that you can't do this for federalism reasons. Elizabeth Warren is a is a lawyer. She is a constitutional law professor. Um, she has a lot of lawyers on their team. They they claim to believe that they can win this out. I, I can't tell you that they can't. Uh, but if we remember the Medicaid expansion debate, right, Congress and the Obama administration tried to do something to basically force states to expand Medicaid. And somewhat unexpectedly, a 6-3 Supreme Court majority ruled that that was a kind of illicit commandeering of state authority. What Warren is talking about doing here is much more, it seems to me, much more across that line, right? She is saying, because my new federal program makes your state Medicaid program and your, uh, you know, other state health care programs unnecessary, I am going to make you pay into the federal fund to support that program. In general, we don't do things that way. You can have maintenance of effort as a requirement to receive federal grants, but these are not optional federal grants. And one consequence of this is that blue states that have more generous Medicaid programs are sort of going to be disadvantaged in the future vis-a-vis red states. So there's a lot of political questions. There's a lot of constitutional questions. Somebody put it the other way. If you imagine this past, right, now you sort of kick the hot potato to John Roberts, right? You have a severability clause. So Roberts can blow a $6 trillion hole and the deficit if he wants to, but the plan is already passed and it sort of doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, there, there's trillions of dollars in that state recapture, which I, I'm not sure legally you can do. Um, then the other thing she does is she wants to say that she is going to directly and literally capture the trillions of dollars that employers spend on their employees' health care. That, like, you will just go and tally up how much do you spend per employee on health care, and then you have to give 98% of that 
to the federal government. It doesn't pay for the whole thing by any means, but it's the kind of bold concept that makes the costs go down for everyone except billionaires or very rich people work, right? It's to say not that she's not replacing employer insurance contributions with a new tax that's leveled and a sort of equitable basis. It is just literally the money goes into the federal government. And that delivers on the talking point, right? Because it's 98 percent. It is a guarantee that every employer's health care costs go down, that every sort of middle class worker and including low income people who might be on Medicaid or veterans who have VA benefits, like everybody just winds up with a better deal as a result of this. It creates a lot of odd like horizontal equity questions uh, because right now if your employer um, is very generous, right, that's a cost to the employer. They probably don't love it. It may result in lower salaries. But the upside is that they get to tell you, right, when they're trying to hire people, like, hey, we have this really good health insurance program. Uh, under the new plan, everybody's health insurance program will be just as good, but some employers are paying much, much more for it. And it doesn't really make it doesn't really make sense conceptually, but it delivers on the promises. And it shows the tension between actually like a common sense description, which is like we're going to give everybody a better deal on their health insurance. And actually requires you to create a system that's very complicated on its back end versus a simpler system, like every employer is going to pay whatever tax, is like easy to describe and sort of makes sense. But calculating how that would impact any given person is very complicated. This is kind of one of the things where the Warren team has acknowledged that as detailed as this plan is, there are more details they still need to fill in. Like they have said that there is going to be some kind of transition plan that they're going to put out, which probably would address the fact that you don't want a situation where five years after you pass Medicare for all, employer A is still paying a ton more to the government than employer B for the exact same stuff. But, you know, this does kind of get at some of the meta questions of for as detailed a plan as this is, and it is, you know, it's it's answering a question that Bernie Sanders and, you know, many in the Democratic Party don't even think it's appropriate to be discussing at this point. It's doing a lot of fairly detailed math. It still doesn't get into the level of granularity that would be required to actually figure out how it would work. And yet it's committing policy in all sorts of ways that make it, you know, arguably both less flexible in a legislative context and maybe, depending on who you ask, less viable politically. So there's, it's good to bear in mind that there's kind of both a discussion about what exactly is in here and are they good ideas or not, and the discussion about was it a good idea to put this out and would it be a good idea to kind of continue to build out this proposal throughout the primary to answer the questions that are raised by the proposal itself. So I think we should probably take a break. And then I want to get back to the brief discussion we had earlier about just kind of some of the intricacies of this plan. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Something that I think all of us have at points expressed frustration about during the course of this primary is that it seems to have been taken for granted by not just candidates, but I think especially debate moderators, that health care is going to be the legislative priority of the next Democratic president. And so th- literally the reason that this proposal exists is because debate after debate after debate featured really detailed lines of questioning on what does your health care plan look like. So the Warren camp is both responding to this and doing something that kind of makes it clear that they couldn't actually do health care first, right? Because they're assuming that they pass two major, major, major pieces of legislation, tax you know, reform and comprehensive immigration reform, either as the same bill with health care reform, which both I'm sure runs into a lot of constitutional problems and is just mind-blowing in terms of the vote counting you would have to do, or that they would pass three really, really big pieces of legislation in presumably a single Congress. And that's not a realistic assumption. Way back earlier in the primary, Kamala Harris said something really honest, that you only get, you know, one or maybe two big bills a Congress. And so it's really disingenuous to make big promises that rely on getting stuff through Congress. The Warren camp appears to be assuming that they can pass three big bills in the same Congress, or alternatively, they're kind of admitting that health care wouldn't be their first legislative priority. It's a very, very weird thing for them to be assuming. And I think we should talk more about kind of the political capital in addition to the literal capital that this plan would take. Well, I wouldn't say admitting, right? Like Warren has actually, I think, been one of the clearest of the candidates. Obviously, all the candidates are not like super clear about issue prioritization because it's not in your interest to tell anyone that like they need to go second. But Warren has been, I think, one of the clearest candidates about the fact that like her central concern is passing her vision of, like, anti-corruption legislation, right? That, like, she really Mm -hmm. sees American politics through the lens of 
the administrative state and regulation and the issues that she has worked on all of her life and that she, A, like will put a lot of emphasis on the staffing of the regulatory agencies, but that then legislatively, like she is very concerned about corruption because corruption in the political process leaches into those administrative questions, that then secondarily to that, she's interested in questions of political power, right? And so that goes to the original, like the wealth tax idea. It goes to labor law reform, right? And she, because of her plans shtick, she was never able to say, like, look, the reason I'm not doing a detailed health care plan is that I have made it pretty clear that, like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's gotten hard to say this in the debate stage, but, like, this is actually where I am. Like, I believe in principle in Medicare for all. Like, I think that that is a good idea, but I don't think that it would be a good idea to go do it in 2021, right? Like, I think there's other fish to fry and that there are sort of small ways you could make the healthcare system better. And I've always felt like that's what Warren has been saying about this. She's now committed herself to this plan where, like, Yes. I mean, if you take it, like, it demonstrates that a plan can be written and that, like, if the political obstacles all fall away, you know, so much the better. But, like, everything that she has ever said about healthcare policy, it seems to me, is, like, big blaring signs that, like, this isn't actually going to happen, guys, right? Like, this is a political document. It shows that mathematically you can give everybody this healthcare without raising taxes on the middle class. But none of that is to say that, like, she will. And not in the sense that, like, she's going to, like, darkly betray anybody. But, like, this is not how the political system works, right? There's not going to be a comprehensive ethics reform, a brand new wealth tax, a comprehensive immigration reform, and then we come back and do this, like, health care bill in August. Like, there's just no, no way, right? Like, so you can kick the tires on this and see something, like, the numbers add up, but, like, if we, I, don't get your hopes up, but, like, also don't worry too much about it. So your theory of the case is that she put out this very detailed document so that people would stop asking her about it, essentially? Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, it is kind of a it's, it's a thing that could actually happen, but it is, as you say, a political document, kind of a symbolic, like, look, I did it. I said that, that you know, this is what we would do if we had the ability to do it. Because as our colleague Ezra Klein, you know, he wrote a piece that was basically saying that the question is not what Medicare for all looks like, it's what can pass and what can pass in the actual, you know, not in the hypothetical, we get everyone on board, we launch a people's revolution and we get this done, but what can actually pass an actual Congress with actual people who are elected to actual Congress? The candidates had earlier gotten themselves into one of these like raise a hand things because they had all been talking about their different healthcare ideas and they were saying, well, would you provide like government subsidized health insurance to undocumented immigrants. And they all um, committed themselves to doing that. And that's an idea that polls very, 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 very poorly. Um, Also, undocumented immigrants, of course, cannot vote. So it's not like an obvious kind of winner. Um, It's something Obama had not said he would do. Nobody gave like really detailed explanations of what that meant, right? And so one thing that you see coming through from this page is Warren moving toward a more politically palatable answer to that question, which is that— Which also like makes more sense with like there's no one on that debate stage who believes that there should be 11 million undocumented immigrants. Exactly, yes. But it's to say that the solution to the health 
health care problems of the long-settled undocumented population is to give them legal status and a path to citizenship, right? And so uh, to me, actually, that's the significance of this. Not like, ha, 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 this is so unrealistic. She's counting on the $400 billion because $400 billion is a rounding error in the context of this $57 trillion healthcare plan. Like, totally minor modeling errors are going to completely swamp that $400 billion. What's important is that she committed to giving insurance to everybody. Right. And what she is saying here is that the logical sequence of how that happens is that people are going to have their status regularized and then they're going to get insurance the same way everybody else does, rather than that it's going to be you hop across a fence and now you get a free doctor's visit, right? And it, it makes a lot more sense, right, as a as a logical prioritization of the efforts, because nobody has ever said that, like, Medicare for all needs to cover um, just, like, random people who live in Bolivia, right? Like, it's a program for America, but you can't exclude millions of people who are living here and are settled in the country. But the reasons progressives don't want to exclude those people are just the same reasons that they want to give them legal status, that they want that, – that, that, that this this is an, an immigration policy question, right? Not really a health policy question. Right. I think the other reason that it's useful to understand that comprehensive immigration reform is basically a footnote in this plan is that it can be a footnote in the context of a Democratic primary. No Democrat running for the presidency is saying we shouldn't legalize these people. Basically, all of them appear to have signed on to the exact same immigration reform framework that everybody signed signed off on in in 2016, that everybody Democrats got on board with in the first half of this decade. The problem, of course, is that not only is that our Democratic votes not sufficient to pass something, but that, like, as we learned in 2013, when one side of the aisle is so bought into this is the framework by which we can make this happen legislatively, it doesn't allow for a ton of the kind of horse trading that often is required to pick off marginal members of Congress and get a bill to pass. And so that kind of overbakedness, while it's definitely going to be a problem for comprehensive immigration reform the next time it comes up— Also, I think, is something that it would be good to think about in the context of Democratic primary candidates putting together these very detailed plans when presidents don't really write legislation. And often legislation has to change substantially between when it's introduced and when it passes in order to gather the votes. And, I mean, so much realistically, right, I mean, more than I think any other issue, the fate of immigration policy in a 2021 Congress is going to hinge both on, like, what actually happens in the 2020 election, but also on the very hazy question of, like, what happens in the in the land of takes. I, I would say that right now— a predominant view of Trump is that he is broadly unpopular, but his political standing is being held up by overperforming in key Midwestern swing states that have very low Latino populations and very large numbers of non-college whites who are skeptical of immigration. As long as that's the sort of dominant narrative that, like, Trump's immigration politics help lift him up Mm -hmm. above his ordinary baseline, it's just really hard to see anything getting done on immigration policy absent, like, crushing blowout, right? Right. Yes, it's it's very important to remember that as much as immigration politics are events-driven, the window for comprehensive immigration reform opened with the 2012 election and the takes coming out of that and closed with the primarying of Eric Cantor and the takes coming out of that. So the 2012 election led to these completely opposite takes in which uh, 
immigration, anti-immigration politics had doomed Republicans in Nevada and Colorado and possibly right. Virginia. Which led to the famous GOP autopsy document, which was pretty much like, we have to do this. And, you know, you get to the Gang of Eight and then, well, here we are now. It's it's fascinating how takes powered this this <laughs> argument appears to be. Someday we, I, I want to assemble a panel of people who did 2012 election takes and we can all, we can all go back over what the hell we were thinking exactly. Um, because it was always been obvious there was not a ton of Latino voters in Ohio. And we knew that was an important swing state in 2012, but there was a, a mass insanity. Um, so it, the thing about Warren's plan that I think will get to, you know, if, if you really want to take it seriously from a, a wonk's perspective, is just that, like, this is not how social insurance works, internationally, right? Whether or not you think the math adds up or the 6% wealth tax on billionaires or, or whatever, that, you know, Social Security, classic Medicare, foreign welfare states, they are financed usually by broad-based taxes, by uh, value-added taxes and by um, payroll taxes. And the reason for that, right, I mean, I mean th there are revenue-based reasons for it, but I would say if you think about it conceptually, right, the idea of Social Security, is that it's just it's a smart idea for society to collectivize the risk of outliving your retirement savings uh, for healthcare, right? That it's a smart idea for society to collectivize health risks and primarily to redistribute from healthy to sick. Right, rather than from rich to poor, and that's why it's a, a healthcare system, right? And and value added tax, uh, payroll taxes, they are mildly redistributive, but like the point of the universal health insurance system is to make sure that sick people are getting care and everybody is paying into it. If you just want to level the playing field between rich and poor, which is not like a crazy thing to do, but the most natural thing to do is to take rich people's money and then give money to people, right, right? Rather than take rich people's money and give health insurance to people. Uh, Warren's plan, and, and I mean, Democratic Party thinking in general, it, which you now see on everything, right? It's like, well, we want to give um, subsidized childcare, uh, and we're going to do it by closing corporate tax loopholes, right? There's something odd about the narrow logic of like every A needs a Z to exactly offset it. But then particularly in those terms with like, Every new program needs a redistributive pay-for, and it's because, like, public opinion is very friendly to taxing the rich and very hostile to taxing the middle class. But, like, the difference between a, a generous welfare state and a stingy one normally is actually, like, society's belief in the value of public services versus private consumption, right? And then a conceptually separate question is, like, the leveling of income gaps across the playing field. And basically all Democrats tend to, like, squash these two things together. And Warren just squashes them together, like, a lot because she because she has so many plans and because her plans are so ambitious. But there's actually something a little bit weird about it, right? Because under Warren's plan, if inequality went away, Right. If some of the other things she wants to do, like strengthening labor unions and regulating the financial sector better, right, and, and antitrust, if all this stuff worked and we had a much more egalitarian society, then her healthcare system wouldn't work. 
because it's all based on taxing the, like, excess wealth of a small minority of people. We were talking the other week about kind of unquestioned assumptions among Democratic Party insiders about what is and isn't politically palatable. And I think that one of those is they've really internalized the idea of the submerged state, right, that benefits, preferably universal benefits, but certainly benefits that aren't obviously redistributive are going to be more politically palatable Mm -hmm. than overt redistribution. And that does lead to like some big policy problems as you've raised. But, you know, the extent to which this is even this document, which really poses itself as policy driving politics, and we're going to take on a massive, massive fight with very entrenched healthcare industries, you know, the very fight that the Obama administration avoided in passing the ACA, and we're going to win because we're right. It is in certain respects, kind of one level below that, a politics driving policy document. But I think that there is, I want to dig in a little more on What you mentioned, Matt, in passing, which is the odd assumption that for every A, you have to have an offset Mm -hmm. cost Z, because that gets into, you know, obviously the reason that this proposal was put out there to begin with. But also, I think some of the critiques, you know, both from Warren's left and kind of from her defenders in in talking about the responses to the plan that. I think it's worth kind of airing out. On the one hand, I mean, it's a little silly to be like, well, we can just have a multi-trillion dollar plan with no taxes, um, you know, which I have sometimes said on Twitter to, to troll. But, you know, it is true if you think about it, right? Uh, one point all here in Warren is that, like, this money is getting spent one way or the other. And a lot of it is being spent by state and local governments. And even if you can't do this, like, formal thing where the federal government seizes the money, if state and local governments were relieved of that spending obligation, like, they would probably reduce taxes because it's like the biggest line item on their budget, right? And if employers were relieved of the obligation to provide health insurance to people, they would spend more money on wages and salaries, right? And again, to be clear, not because they're like super nice guys and like, hey, everyone gets a 15% raise, but because if you just have way more cash on your balance sheet, right? If it's way cheaper to hire people, you're going to add employees. If you have demand for your customers, you know, the money will get spent, right? It doesn't just pile up like Scrooge McDuck style. And health insurance subsidies are not taxable under the current system. But anything else businesses could spend the money on, whether they give people raises, whether they hire more workers, even if they just pay out more dividends to rich people, that's all taxable. Right. So like that revenue would would come into play. People would have more money and they would buy stuff and that generates economic activity. Right. And it seems like it would all work itself out to me. Right. You might you would probably have to change some taxes somewhere down the line. But like it's OK. The problem is actually in the healthcare system. Right. Which is like. There are a lot of kind of assertions here about utilization and 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 this kind of thing. But like. There's not an army of unemployed doctors, right, who can just be, like, mobilized to go provide these extra healthcare services. Nor is it true that there is an inelasticity in the number of 22-year-olds who decide to take the MCAT and go to med school. Right. I mean, there's actually a formal cap on that. And rural hospitals are tending to close. And they, you know, they each have their kind of individual sob stories about why they're doing that. But, like, the basic thing is that you can't, like, make medical professionals want to live in small towns and be non-specialized, relatively low-income practitioners. It makes more sense for them to move to the suburbs of big cities 
cities, work in narrow specialties. And like that doesn't – you know, people have a lot of ideas about how to change that, including sort of in, in Warren's plan. But it's like when you – run the healthcare system. It's like you have to address these topics. Like the facilities have to be somewhere and much more so than the like how do you pay for it. It's the like what do you actually do that's like the the challenging question about running a healthcare system. The virtue you know, in traditional like libertarian sense, right? It's like the the virtue of a more markety system is that you don't need to decide in a centralized basis, right? Like how many MRI machines go to Boise, but like you do if the government is going to be controlling all of the payments, or at least it would be irresponsible to just assume it's going to work itself out, um, because even currently it doesn't seem to be working itself out all that well, and it's going to work out worse if you guarantee people that they will be able to find customers basically wherever they go, right? They're going to cluster in, like, places where they want to go, not in places where patients need care. There's also, I think, the kind of broader question of what does it mean to acknowledge that something needs to be paid for, right? The, like, the, it's less that they have different healthcare proposals at this point than that Warren has kind of acceded to a demand that Bernie recedes, refuses to accede to because the Bernie, the Bernie camp's take is this is not a conversation that is suited to a presidential primary. This is not something that the government needs to feel obligated to do. You shouldn't have to assume that there's going to be an offset for everything, blah, 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 blah. And there's also, I think, a kind of broader democratic base reaction to discussions like the one we've been having that point at the holes in this plan that, you know, question some of the assumptions, which in its kind of basis sense can be expressed as, well, the media didn't say anything when Trump said Mexico would pay for the wall, which is right, wrong. Like, all yeah, of us, very like, when the Trump administration literally put out a white paper about paying for the wall, I wrote something about it, and I think three other people did because no one else took it seriously because no one else thought that Mexico paying for the wall was a serious proposal. So, And Mexico is, in fact, not paying, paying for the wall. Fun fact. It can, I think— reflect an underlying conviction among some Democratic voters that because Democrats are currently much more concerned with the details of governance than Republicans seem to be, at least in in public discourse, that Democrats end up being the victims of a double standard where the media is allowing Republicans to slide, which may or may not be true. But there also is a legitimate question of several months out from the first primary almost a year out from exactly a year out from Election Day, is it appropriate to demand that a candidate have all of the follow up answers to the things that they want the republic to do? Because, I I mean, I think that the answer to that, though, is like it's probably not fair to demand it, but it is being demanded of specifically Elizabeth Warren, because I think that, you know, the difference here between Warren and Sanders is that, you know, they both understand how legislation works. They both serve in the Senate. But I think that with Warren, she believes in a sense of kind of a real mobile, an effort to, Ezra basically said that it's kind of a more populist strategy, whereas that Sanders pretty much thinks that like, you know, Americans will support European style taxes and reti- return for a European style social welfare state. And Democrats just have to make the argument and not be afraid to do so. And so it's interesting because, you know, you kind of see the more centrist relatively candidates like Pete Buttigieg saying like the math is controversial on Warren's plan. But I think that there's something to be said about the fact that the, that we're doing the math at all or that Democrats are doing the math at all. 
And that there's kind of an understanding that the math is necessary, that the likelihood of this happening is necessary, that that I think Democrats rely on not just the idea of possibility, but on likelihood. Mm-hmm. Like, could this work? Could we actually do it? Because, you know, I think that there is something to be said. And, you know, there is an entire podcast to be done about how the media plays into this, because you saw a lot of responses from conservatives saying, like, saying Mexico would pay for the wall made more sense than this plan. And I'm like, no, it didn't. But if you treat them, you know, I think the only way that that makes even remote sense is that if you treat Mexico paying for the wall as this involved metaphor for curtailing both undocumented immigration and legal immigration, but not a literal wall, which is actually not what Trump meant at all. Democrats are really focused, or some Democrats, specifically the ones who are running, are really focused on likelihood, whereas the Democratic base is focused on possibility. Okay, I, let's let's take a second break and then not do a white paper uh, and, and continue and, and, to talk, and talk, about talk more about this. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Apologies, there is no white paper this week. However, uh, I will put in show notes the Urban Institute's paper on how much they think uh, a bunch of different health reform options will take. That's sort of been in the background of this conversation. If you if you enjoy papers, uh, that that's all good. You know, the asymmetry, right, uh, which I think a lot of liberals perceive acutely and I think is real. I think it's important to understand that it doesn't come from 
the media. It actually comes from the internal dynamics of the parties, right? That, like, a very reasonable suspicion that a person might have had about Donald Trump is that he was not, in fact, going to deliver on some of his policy commitments, right? The reason that one should be skeptical of that is that they were so poorly worked out. Right. I mean, there are many reasons to be skeptical, but I mean, like, if you heard Donald Trump— That they were so poorly worked out and that he, on occasion, appeared to have, at best, glancing knowledge, uh, understanding of it. So it's like if somebody came to me and they were like, I really want to vote for Donald Trump, and I was like, well, why? And they were like, well, because I'm against abortion, but also I really want a universal health care system. And Trump has said, we're going to cover everybody, and the government's going to do it. I would have said to you— I think you should have a lot of skepticism of that claim. And, like, one thing I would point to is that he had never released a plan that would do anything like that, right? But Republicans, it's not the media, right? It's Republican stakeholders themselves were not raising those kinds of questions about this, right? Whereas Democrats are operating into an environment where because for a whole bunch of reasons, but like their constituencies have a lot of questions for the candidates about what they're really going to do. And so they – I don't really think that releasing this plan in this way does make it any more likely that Warren will deliver on these healthcare commitments. But that's where it comes from, right, is a sense that they would not trust. If somebody just got up there and was like, I'm going to make things way better for people of color in America, and then had no explanation of like what that meant or how they were going to do that, voters' reaction to that would be very negative, right? It's not that the media would be like, well, what do you mean? What's your plan for that? It's that the voters themselves would not react well to like a white person coming up on stage and making a totally non-substantive commitment about this stuff, right? There were questions. Bernie can get away with less detail on Medicare for All because he is known as the guy who's been talking about this for decades and decades. And the people who like Bernie Sanders have no doubt that he is really committed to pursuing single-payer health care. Warren is trying to establish her bona fides, right? But by doing this kind of stuff. And like that's what Democrats are about and there are costs and benefits to having that kind of uh, approach to things. There are, there are real benefits to like your base being willing to let you get away with uh, a lot of like slipshod stuff. Uh, but like it's worth saying that like Trump does not deliver, like including on the wall, right? It's not just that like Mexico isn't paying for the wall, but like he kept saying that like we had to have a solid barrier. Right. And like he hasn't built a solid barrier because the solid barrier idea didn't make sense. And they've pushed themselves to promising, you know, 500 miles of new fencing in like the last year of his first term because they really, really want to have that for the election. But they haven't done a whole lot in the first three years. And I think it's also worth pointing out that like Republicans who failed to take the problem of Trump not having any policy commitments seriously has, in fact, resulted in some problems for Republican members of Congress, right? There was a big New York Times package over the weekend on Trump's use of Twitter. And one of the more interesting things was just buried in there is a quote that Trump has told members of Congress not to believe what his Office of Legislative Affairs says about what bills he will support until you see a tweet from him endorsing it, which really undermines the Office of Legislative Affairs' ability to negotiate with members of Congress and has, in fact, resulted in, you know, Trump's kind of will-he-or-won't-he shtick undermining, you know, efforts to 
repeal Obamacare, for example, in 2017. So it's not exactly like Republicans are getting away with everything by not holding themselves to a higher standard. But I do think that there is, in addition to constituent accountability, a little bit of Democratic self-conception at play here, which is, as I said a few weeks ago, that Democrats, establishment Democrats, are really bought in right now on being the party of order Muppets, Mm -hmm. and that they are the ones who care enough about the federal government to run it competently, and that that means that they sometimes have to make hard decisions and compromises because it's better to do that than to just, like, let the whole thing burn down. And that is not something that can be 100 percent reduced to a response to constituents. That, I think, is a party elite mindset that Bernie Sanders just doesn't have. He doesn't buy into the idea that Democrats have to be willing to do whatever it takes to steer the ship of state, even at the expense of ideological principle. I mean, it's it's funny because I think that it must be, and I think you're hearing this from kind of rank-and-file Democrats or kind of the Democratic base, that they are tired of order Muppets. They would much rather interpret the experience of attempting to put a cat into a carrier than be an order Muppet. The idea that in response to Trump and how one of the challenges, and I've talked about this a lot, is that when Trump said, you know, Trump was very effective at realizing that actually it's a really great idea to just say whatever anybody wants to hear and then not do any of it. But it turned out that you know, when he said things like, we're going to have health care for everybody, he did not mean anything by that. And everybody just recognized and people heard in their imagination that he was both the most pro-life president, also the most pro-LGBT president, and also was going to care- guarantee health care for everyone. And that Democrats who I think feel as if, well, now we need to prove that we're not like that, that we can actually do all of this stuff, I think it's challenging because... You are attempting to play chess with a badger. It's not going to work. You're not going to get anywhere. Like, it's not, you know, there isn't going to be, ah, yes, well, I will respond to this with my own plan. You know, I talked a little bit last year at an event um, at uh, college talking about how, you know, Obamacare repeal, which you know, a lot of people, a lot of Republicans were like, you know, this is what we're going to do because we've got Trump in office and we've got all the power to do it. And it turns out Trump wasn't really that interested in doing it. And so I think it's challenging. And it actually is one of those moments where I think personally, I think that Sanders's idea of just being like, no, I don't have to explain how this is going to be paid for, because one, that's I've been talking about this issue for more than 40 years. And two, we're dealing with a president who basically just be like, yes, sure, tax cuts, fine, whatever. I think it's really challenging when you have this internal you know, debate within one party that is very much like, are we the party of order or are we the party of fuck these people? Well, you know, <laughs> It's not just order and and fuck these people. Like one thing that Warren has in common with Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, right, is that all three of them were like law school professors before they were politicians or or in some senses concurrently. And that's like a one mentality, right? Like they're very into like like laws and like what they say. And, And the whole way law works is that like little words make a big difference, right? And it's like not about big ideas and, and things have to be consistent. And so even though they have very different ideological principles and, and Warren's ideological principles, I think, are a lot closer to Bernie Sanders's, right? Then like Bernie is like, I don't know, he's like, he's like a guy, right? He's a, he's a political activist, really, who became a politician, um, and, and didn't go to law school, right? And, you know, he, 
has just like a more a looser, more moralistic way of talking about most kinds of stuff, right? And and it's a it's a different kind of rhetorical scheme. But the other thing that I think where to me like plansism falls down for all of these candidates is in like what is the constitutional role of the president of the United States? And the president plays a very important role in the legislative process, two important roles, right? But it's agenda setting and it's a negative veto. And one thing you never hear the candidates talking about is like, what would you not do? Right. Right. So like when you when you hear, you know, Joe Biden has a kind of discourse of bringing things back to normal and his good relationships with Senate Republicans and and blah, blah, blah. And progressives offer a lot of skepticism that like having a beer with Mitch McConnell is really going to get things done. And and I think that's all completely true. Um, What is not as evident there is that there was bipartisan legislation that happened when Obama was president. And there was also bipartisan legislation that didn't happen when Obama was president, sometimes because Senate Republicans were obstructionists, but sometimes because the White House scuttled things, right? There were Democrats who wanted to do a deal that would allow companies to take their offshore cash back to the U.S. at a very discount tax rate and then call that a pay-for that would finance an infrastructure program. And the White House scuttled that idea, right? A different White House could have not scuttled it. And, you know, you look at it, right? At the time, I sided with Obama. I I thought, like, you know, this is a bad idea, this repatriation gimmick, um, and we shouldn't give into it. Um, If you look at the consequences of Obama not doing it, it's that Trump wound up doing the repatriation gimmick, and instead of using it to pay for immigration, he used it to pay for more tax cuts, which I think in retrospect makes it look like, well, probably Democrats should have done that deal, right? But that kind of judgment, like, what will you give into, is actually a big part of what being president is about. And, like, it's not on the agenda here at all. Whereas, like, what will you demand Congress do? Like, that doesn't happen, like, at all. Like, no no president achieves that. And when they try, right, I mean, you saw this Trump with the wall shut down. Like, everyone always fails when their effort to get things done is to say, like, I'm not going to allow the basic operation of the government unless I get my way on this. Presidents have a lot of ways to get things done, but, like, that way does not work. And no one is saying they're going to do it exactly. Um, So I would always be more interested in these questions of like, is anybody up there saying I will scuttle an incremental healthcare reform idea because I think it's important to keep working toward the utopian Medicare for all vision? I don't think based on their records that either Warren or Sanders would do that, but it would be an interesting piece of terrain to stake out if somebody would. But like Bernie voted for ACA, uh, Warren, uh, you know, used to say there are many paths forward on this. And and so to me, like this whole debate is a little frustratingly fake. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is, and this is a very odd sentiment to express on the weeds, but I think there's an argument to be made that so far the 2020 Democratic primary has been overly focused on policy. And I don't mean that in the like, there needs to be more talk of narrative and vision and how to beat Trump and all of that. I mean that in the what sense that- What does it that, mean to be an American, dude? <laughs> um, I mean that in the sense that the more that presidential primaries become vehicles for proposing pieces of legislation, the more you run into, A, the overbaking problem that might make it harder to be flexible in passing legislation in future, but B, we don't see differences between candidates in where they would be willing to draw lines vis-a-vis Congress and, you know, to, to get back on the hobby horse that 
Matt and I have both spent several months on, you know, you don't hear what they would do with the executive branch. And those kinds of things that are, regardless of who is in Congress, things that are that the president is going to have the ability to do, maybe have gotten short shrift because of these questions that ultimately any president is going to have to leave a little bit of leeway for Congress to decide. You're going to have to leave leeway for Congress to decide. Also, when something as big as this, right, like these cost estimates are like— Somebody else does that, right? Like, it's good, I guess, and constructive for Warren to say what she thinks you could do policy-wise. Uh, but, like, one thing that some people who work in, in Congress have pointed out to me is that, like, if you were to try to do a bill, right, you'd say everybody was bought in. Say there's, like, 55 senators who are like, yes, in principle, I want to do Medicare for all. Now, how do we do it? They would need to start putting forward ideas, like Warren's ideas, for how do you control costs. And then they would need to submit those ideas to the the Congressional Budget Office and hear back from CBO, like, what does CBO think of those ideas? And then if what CBO thinks isn't what the authors think, they then need to decide what their next step is, right? Do they change their ideas? Do they tell the CBO to go fuck itself, right? Like, it's a real choice, but it's just difficult to predict in advance, right? And, like, this is writing the the ACA, writing any big, complicated piece of legislation involves a lot of this ping-ponging, where you have to consult back with your colleagues, you have to consult back with the experts, you have to look at the media reaction to different things that are going on. This is also why you can't pass three major bills in a Congress for... Right. I mean, there's a logistical difficulty, but it's also just, like, you can't say, like ex ante, exactly how are you going to set hospital payment rates because it's not, it's not just it's not up to the president unilaterally. It's just not up to anybody unilaterally. Like it's an inherently collective process in which you need to like see what's up. And and I mean, I guess that's an unsatisfying answer to deliver on a debate stage. But I mean, to me, it's not that there's like too much focus on policy exactly, but like a Kind of um, the the focus on policy is a little fake. It's like it's not reflective of how policy making happens, right? In a real kind of way. And I think with some of these candidates, you can see in the shadows like what it is they're actually talking about and what they're thinking. And again, for Warren, I mean. I feel that she's saying, like, she is not going to put a super high priority on health reform, that she both doesn't believe in these incremental solutions and also doesn't see a short-term path to a huge change, so she's going to work on some other topics. That seems like a valid answer to me, but again, is not, like, overtly what's being said about any of this, so it makes it a little hard to know. In conclusion, let Matt moderate a presidential (laughs) debate, you cowards. Ah, yeah. Well, everyone should come on the weeds. I think all, all candidates, always welcome. Always, always very, very, very welcome. Um, so, okay. So, thanks, guys. Thanks, uh, uh, Jane, Dara. Um, thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to Deb Editel for uh, engineering this episode and to Jackson Bierfeld for producing and editing. Um, and the weeds will be back on Friday.